0: My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity 1 on 1. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better by liking this video on YouTube, by writing a review on iTunes, or simply leaving a comment on Singularity weblog. Today, my guest is Frank J. Tipler. Dr. Tipler is a physicist and cosmologist, perhaps best known for his Omega point or what he sometimes refers to as the cosmological singularity. He's a professor at Tulane University and the author of a number of books such as The Anthropic Cosmological Principle, The Physics of Immortality and The Physics of Christianity. So Dr. Tipler, welcome to Singularity 1 on 1. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk. Fantastic. To Fantastic. So, let me ask you this first if you were to introduce yourself in your own few words, how would you do that?
1: Ooh. Well, I would say that I have always been fascinated in um, physics. I am a passionate physics, physical imperialist, I'll call myself. I believe everything can be reduced to physics and everything ultimately is a question of physics. And I have always been interested in um, trying to expand our knowledge of physics not only for intellectual purposes, but also to increase human power. I think that science and technology are intertwined, and one of the reasons why we are so fascinated by science is because it allows us to live a much better life with the technology we develop through science than otherwise.
0: Mm -hmm. I watched an interview with you once where you said that you are a physics fundamentalist. I'm that too.
1: I believe
0: (laughs) in the fundamental laws
1: of physics. The fundamental laws are quantum mechanics, general relativity, and the standard model of particle physics. One of the things I've been trying to defend over the past uh, 20 years is that we already have a theory of everything. Our theory of everything is those three. Of course you have to quantize gravity, but that was done in the 1960s by my own teacher John Wheeler and Bryce DeWitt. So we've got a theory of everything and it tells us what's going to happen in the future and what happened in the past.
0: Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So let me just grab one word there and see if we can decipher it a little more. Did you say that you're a physics imperialist or empiricist?
1: Both words apply because science ultimately, physics in particular, is an experimental discipline, which means that everything is empirical. That you have to believe the laws of physics, not because some authority says they're true, but because they're confirmed in the laboratory. That's empiricism. But imperialism means taking over someone else's territory. And uh, as a physicist, I want to take over philosophy, and I want to take over um, theology, and of course, psychology and evolutionary theory. Physics is good for what ails you. That's physics imperialism.
0: You want to take off everything, including religion, perhaps?
1: Of course taking over religion, because what is religion about? It's a theory of God. Now, God is generally considered a subject completely outside of physics, but how did the great theologians, let's take two, um, Moses Maimonides, the greatest um, Jewish theologian of all time, and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, the greatest Roman Catholic theologian of all times, so how did they define God? They defined God as the uncaused first cause. If you go back in time... Or the unmoved uh, mover, too. That was the unmoved mover. That was another um, in one of um, St. Thomas Aquinas' Five Ways Proof of the Existence of God. Now, the proofs assume the truth of Aristotelian physics, which is false. So the proofs, we will, they may be valid given the assumptions. We reject the assumptions, so you can't conclude that the conclusions are true. But it's also possible the conclusion could be true even if the premises are incorrect. Mm-hmm. And that's what I claim is the case, because I take from their, their proofs what they mean by the word God. And in um, St. Thomas' um, second way, he concluded there must exist an uncaused first cause, which all men call God. Uh-huh. God is defined to be the uncaused first cause you look back into time. This Earth, of course, was formed out of a nebula of about 4.6 billion years ago, but before that could happen we had to have thermonuclear synthesis to produce elements heavier uh, than helium. We also did the helium which was formed in the Big Bang. Keep going back and you'll come to a an event called the cosmological singularity. 13.6 billion years ago, that was the beginning of time but what is fascinating to me is the cosmological singularity is, in Fred Hoyle's words, something that is not only not subject to the known laws of physics, but pretty clearly cannot be subject to any possible laws of physics. Rather, it gives rise to the laws of physics if it existed. So, it's the uncaused first cause, which is to say, God. So, right out of physics, following the logic of physics imperialism, we conclude that god exists so we have the fundamental principle of religion already there in physics now um, immanuel kant once said in his uh, wrote in his book um, the critique of pure reason that there are three fundamental problems of metaphysics his words metaphysics namely does god exist well physics has already solved that one huh. and second one um is there life after death? Third, do we have free will? I claim all of these questions are ultimately questions of physics. So, the answer in physics, take me a while to discuss it, or I can discuss it in a book which I've done in my book, The Physics of Immortality, Physics of Christianity. I've discussed both of these in detail. Yes, there's life after death, and yes, we have free will. So, the answer to Kant's three fundamental questions of quote metaphysics in quote are yes, 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 God exists, there's life after death, we have free will. there's nothing left for reveal religion to do. we physics have absorbed we physicists have absorbed it all
0: that that's fascinating, but before we dive uh, even deeper into the cosmological singularity and issue of God, I want to uh, take our time to go through some other issues first so some mathematicians would claim that everything in the universe is about mathematics, not about physics. What do you say to that?
1: I say that actually physics is more fundamental than mathematics, that mathematics is derived from physics. Now, um, what really convinced me of this was a comment made by Richard Feynman and this was in the period when you were having the invention of the quantum computer. The quantum computer, in a sense, is a separate device from the Turing machine. Feynman remarked, that was the problem with Alan Turing. He thought he understood paper. That You have to remember that when mathematicians do mathematics, they are actually um, manipulating in the real world. Our concepts of mathematics ultimately come from the real world. Now, one of the fundamental questions which mathematicians have debated ever since uh, Plato and before is what is truly fundamental? The integers or the continuum? Now, the answer I give is the continuum, but in the 19th century mathematicians had decided the opposite Namely, the integers were more fundamental. The famous mathematician, Chroniker said God made the integers. All the rest is the work of man. So what they did is to put integers on the most fundamental level and then deduce everything else, including the continuum. But I ask myself, where do our concept of integers come from? Well, it's counting individual objects. Counting, um, well, let's take... Two um, quarters, two more quarters. Uh Aha! That means we've got four quarters. Uh Aha! That's generalized to two plus two is equal to four. A fundamental statement of mathematics. But look where it comes from. It comes from our observations of the real world. Suppose that mass was not conserved. It is conserved. That's a fact of the real world, not of mathematics. But suppose that whenever we put two quarters and two quarters together, either another quarter would appear, or one of the quarters would disappear. It would never have occurred to us to create a mathematics in which 2 plus 2 is equal to 4, because in such a universe that would not be true. So really, mathematics proceeds from observations of the physical world. Now, if you ask why do quarters exist, why are there integers? Well, you look at this Schrodinger equation, the fundamental equation of quantum mechanics, and this was a point made by Schrodinger himself, namely that the eigenstates, quantum, that refers to a number integer, really comes from a fundamental continuum equation as eigenstates, as eigenvalues. The underlying equation is the continuum, but ultimately the stuff we see in the world as integers come from a particular property of a continuum equation. So, from the physics we conclude, it's not the integers that's fundamental, it's the continuum that's fundamental. So the whole point of my argument is to show that really our whole concept of mathematics, everything we know about mathematics, the postulates of mathematics, really come from the particular physical world that we find ourselves in. Which is to say, Physics is more fundamental than mathematics.
0: I I can see how that makes sense, but what do you say when people reply that, can you really do physics without mathematics? And if you can't, therefore, mathematics has to be more fundamental in a way.
1: I would really say fundamentally that mathematics is a branch of physics. Remember, I'm an imperialist. I want to include everything in physics. I don't want to exclude mathematics because I am, after all, a professor of mathematics here at Tulane. I have a joint appointment, mathematics and physics. I consider mathematics and physics to be intimately intertwined. Now, it's always been the case because Karl Popper, the famous philosopher of science, wrote a paper about 50 years ago in which he pointed out that the true meaning of this famous statement over Plato's Academy let no one ignorant of geometry enter here, actually has a physics meaning, because he was aware of this proof at the time, it had just been proved, that um, the square root of two is irrational, which means there is more to mathematics than integers. Rational numbers, ratios of integers. This was a great shock to Pythagoreans, they thought everything could be integers. and the Pythagorean philosophy inspired Democrites to cook up the atomic theory, i.e. integers once again. What Plato was trying to do, according to Popper, and I think he's right, is to generate a physics that could be based on the continuum. And it inspired his follower, Euclid to create a fully rigorous mathematics based on the continuum, which we now call, appropriately, Euclidean geometry. Mm-hmm. So. Mathematics and physics have always been intertwined, and I fully approve. So I don't want to get into an argument over which is more fundamental, mathematics and physics, because I consider them really two aspects of the same thing. 2 plus 2 equals 4 comes from the physical world, but the logic of mathematics enables us to interpret the physical world. Two branches of of basically physics, mathematics and what we call physics.
0: So let me ask you this personal question. Which one of those two branches did you fall in love with Because first? Because I see you're very passionate. So I'm curious to find out which one of these two did you fall in love first? How and why?
1: My problem in answering that question is that I've always been a bigamist. Oh. That, um, I have always been in love with both physics and mathematics. When I was an <laughs> undergraduate... Um, I thought seriously about getting a double major in mathematics and physics. And, of course, I am a theoretical physicist. That's my Ph.D. subject, global general relativity, which is very mathematical. And once I got my Ph.D. in physics, I went to become a postdoc in the mathematics department at University of California, Berkeley. But I got my um, Uh, Then I went to become a uh, physics postdoc with John Wheeler. And then I moved to Tulane, which was invited me as a mathematician. More recently, of course, I've been doing work in physical cosmology, so I alternate between my two loves. I've got mathematics on the one hand. If you like to draw that distinction, I don't because I intertwine the two. I don't consider them really separate. I've always been in love with both
0: mm mm-hmm. And where does cosmol? Where did cosmology come into sort of your vocation, or when did you start paying attention to cosmology?
1: Well, when uh, I was an undergraduate at MIT, um, the um, Hawking-Penrose singularity theorems first came out. The singularity theorems assert that if the universe is causal, there is no um, time machines possible and if gravity is always attractive and um, if, for example, there exist black holes or there, if the universe is expanding, and certainly it is expanding, uh, then the universe had to begin in a singularity, singularity in the mathematical sense, which means a point where the, um, well, the, the derivatives Breakdown. the mathematics no longer applies. Something outside the physical universe which is controlled by mathematics and derivatives. So the singularity theorems say that there was a time in the past in which physical quantities were actually infinite. So I became fascinated by this. That got interested in me in cosmological questions because ultimately the singularity theorems depend on the properties of the universe as a whole, which is to say
0: cosmology. Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask you something else. Uh, did did you have religion as a major part of your childhood or early That's years? my
1: childhood, yes. In uh, what way? I, well, I was um, in, raised in uh, rural Alabama. There is still a remnant, at least, of my southern accent in the way I speak English. Um, And this was very much a uh, fundamentalist area in the standard meaning of the word fundamentalist religion. And uh, I became, at the age of uh, 12 or 13, a fervent Christian, a fundamentalist Christian. And I accepted Jesus as my savior and so forth, was baptized. This is Southern Baptist Church. Um, and then by the age of 16, I became aware of the criticisms of the arguments of, um, uh, of Aquinas and so forth for the existence of God, and I became dubious that God it really existed, especially since many of the fundamentalists were convinced that the universe began in 4004 B.C., I knew the evidence was overwhelmingly against that, so at the age of sixteen, I became what I called then an agnostic, mm-hmm. and um, I think accurately it would be more appropriate to call myself an atheist, given my views of the time. Now, I remained in this, but not hostile uh, to religion. I just think, well, these guys have made a mistake. that. That's, that's human. People make mistakes. Um, so I was not hostile to religion. When I became a uh, postdoc at Berkeley, I read his fascinating paper by Freeman Dyson, um, in which Life Without End, he hypothesized that the heat death was not inevitable, that life maybe could go on forever. He was concerned with a universe that was ever-expanding. But as an expert in global general relativity, which area I got my uh, um, PhD in, I was interested in closed universes. Is it possible that life can continue forever in a closed universe? Now, I realized it would be possible, as a global general relativist, only if the final singularity had a very strange form. It would have to be a single point, which means no event horizons. And I said, single point? Wait, this guy Teilhard de Chardin proposed that God was a an Omega point a fundamental point in the future so maybe there's a connection with religion here so I started to reconsider my rejection of um, my rejection of, of theism I was a theist at that time became a theorist theist because um, aha God is the final singularity and um, the great Christian theologian Wolfhard Pannenberg was also defending at the time uh, Teilhard, and um, he was pointing out that um, in uh, Exodus, the birth uh, the book of Exodus, Moses asked God for his name, and at the time, a person's name was, to consi- was considered to define that person's essence Moses, for example, means to draw out of, as in being drawn out of the Nile, but it also means, think of it this way, drawing the children of Israel out of Egypt. So that defines Moses' essence. So Moses was asking God, when he asked him for his name, what is your essence? God replied, not in English of course, but in Hebrew, e-hye Asher e-hye, which is most accurately translated as I shall be what I shall be fundamental existence, but future tense. Aha! God is telling Moses that he's the ultimate future singularity. Mm -hmm. Of course, Moses didn't realize that, but God would be thinking about what people thousands of years later reading those words would think. So he was speaking not only to Moses, but to everybody. So um, here we have a argument why the final singularity has to also be God. And I later realized there are three singularities out there. It's in my book, The Physics of uh, Immortality, but at the time I was writing the book, I explicitly said, truthfully, I was not a Christian. But once you see that there are three singularities, which are really one, aha! What religion asserts that God is one but three? Christianity. Mm -hmm. So. Aha, uh-huh. this leads us, now, notice I have never left physics. All of these arguments are entirely inside physics. But what we're seeing is the same assertion being made by 2,000-year-old religion, Christianity. So, this is a deeper relationship between religion and science than I'd previously realized. So I'm moving toward Christianity now. I now call myself a Christian.
0: Oh, yeah. That, so so would it be fair to say that your sort of spiritual journey started as a Christian fundamentalist, went through a period of being an agnostic slash maybe atheist, and then eventually ended up being a theist, and then eventually you realized that you are a Christian kind of theist.
1: I have no choice but to be a Christian because I believe in laws of physics. Remember, I've always been a physics fundamentalist. I have only temporarily been a Christian fundamentalist, but I've always been a physics fundamentalist. So do you think that... That was the cause, remember, of me rejecting Christianity to start with, Mm -hmm. because um, people who are thought of as Christian fundamentalists reject the idea that the universe is billions of years old. I am convinced that the evidence is overwhelming, that the universe is billions of years old, and in particular, I think the Earth is 4.6 billion years old, and I think the universe is about um, 13, let's see, what are the latest numbers, about 13.6, 13.7 billion years. Um, oh, we are, we're not sure within a few hundred million years about the universe yet, but we're getting better. As, as the measurements improve, we're getting a more accurate picture of the uh, age of the universe, and it's way, away for 6,000 years.
0: Let me ask you about uh sort of the it seems to me that the their fundamentalism played a serious and sort of constant role. Is that a fair thing to say in other <laughs> words, you are a fundamentalist Christian, then you're a fundamentalist physicist, so in other words, maybe the physics or the Christianity shifted and fluctuated in time, but the fundamentalism stayed the same. Is that fair to say well
1: um Only in the sense if you want to use the word, it depends on how the word fundamentalism is used. And remember, I consider myself open to new evidence. But um, I'm not going to put aside a fundamentally tested law of physics. I'm not going to reject the second law of thermodynamics. I am not going to reject quantum mechanics. I'm not going to reject relativity unless I see an experiment telling me I have no choice. So why is it... If you like, I'm fundamentally a rationalist, and that I have always been, and I hope to God I always will be. Mm
0: -hmm. But why is it then that, say, you agree with, say, the the bulk of uh, uh, cutting-edge scientists in the world today, in the realm of physics, on those fundamentals at least,
1: right? Well, I'm not sure of that, because it depends on how you define um, physicists. For example, I've well, always let's, imp- say,
0: let's say you agree on, I meant on, say, the age of the earth. On yes, I point. certainly agree with All there those is no very basic between. things. I know that you have huge disagreements that I, I may be able to come later with respect to the anthroporphic, uh, uh, anthropo... Anthropic principle. Anthropic principle, sorry, I apologize. So, uh, but... You accept those fundamentals, and yet what I'm trying to get at here is why is it that they didn't arrive to your Christianity the same way that you did? In other words, you became a physicist to return back to Christianity. You have lots of other physicists who accept those things that led you back to Christianity more or less, but they're not Christian. In fact, many of them would say they're maybe atheists.
1: I'm sure they most... I, I would be willing to bet that the majority of physicists today are atheists. I don't know of any poll, but I would be willing to uh, bet that's true. Yeah, I know some very good ones who are Christians, too. Don Page in Canada, for instance, University of Alberta. Very good physicist, very good Christian. But um, we, he and I are in a minority. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons is that, this is fascinating to me, is that most physicists are theologians first and physicists second. Give an example. Steven Weinberg very good physicist. Um, He got the Nobel Prize in 1979, and justifiably his achievement, getting him the Nobel Prize, was a great achievement, no question about it. One of the founders of the standard model, which I think is a true theory of everything except gravity. But I took a course from him as an undergraduate at MIT in cosmology, and he said that Of the cosmological theories, he most preferred the steady-state theory because it least resembled the account in Genesis. (laughs) Now, I thought that was ridiculous, that what a physicist should do is go by the evidence from physics alone and to heck with what Genesis says. But he was putting Genesis first, i.e. rejecting Genesis, meant that he would have to reject fundamental physical law. So
0: in a At way the end, he was a fundamentalist anti or, or fundamentalist atheist.
1: Exactly. He was an atheist first. Now being an atheist, being atheist, if that's fundamental for you, is being a fundamentalist and that's being unphysical. That's not being a physicist if you allow your atheism to dictate your physics. That's the same era allowing your Christianity to dictate your physics. What a physicist must do is allow the physical evidence, specifically the laws of physics, to dictate what he thinks about reality. As he said, as Weinberg said in his book The First Three Minutes, that people should have looked for the background radiation because the existence of the background radiation is an automatic consequence of the laws of thermodynamics, standard nuclear physics, which everyone new in the 1950s, um, and general relativity. So why didn't people accept the existence of the microwave background, or at least look for it, since it was an automatic consequence of these fundamental laws, which had been established experimentally? Well, the real reason Weinberg let his mask down was because these laws imply, unmistakably, It's a question of mathematics. Here is mathematics intertwined with physics again. That there had to be a mathematical singularity, a region in which time began outside of time in the finite past. Several billion years ago is, at the time, all you could say. We are much more precise now because we've got much better data. But what Weinberg was doing is letting his anti-theology, which is really a form of theology dictate his physics. I think that's true today. I think that physicists who are atheists are allowing their atheism to dictate their physics and they'll go out and invent new laws of physics to avoid that nasty singularity in the past and in the future. So I say let's accept the laws of physics and we therefore have to by automatic logic mathematics accept the existence of the singularity.
0: So so your guy you're claiming that your guiding principle is basically follow the evidence no matter where it takes you which is That's a principle I, I very very much respect myself uh, and you're in a way saying that scientists are being good atheists but bad scientists for clinging it. too much to their atheism and refusing to follow the evidence Exactly Okay now let me let me move on and ask you um, What is the omega point? What's the definition?
1: Definition of the omega point is, as I've mentioned earlier, that the final singularity must be a single point in the Penrose C Boundary construction. That's a mathematical statement. Here we come mathematics and physics. But it also has other implications. Namely, remember I cooked up the omega point theory because I wanted life to go on literally forever to the end of time. As long as the universe exists, then once intelligent life comes into existence, that it never disappears. That's what I call the final anthropic principle. At the time I wrote The Physics of Immortality, I could only assume it, but now I claim we can actually deduce it from the laws of physics. Namely, that life coming to existence continues to exist into the very end of time. Now, what do we mean by life? Well, anyone who is watching this knows about the singularity in the computer sense, we know what that means. Namely, that eventually, human meat rational beings will be replaced by human downloads and are artificial intelligences which can reason at the human level. I am convinced that's true. I am convinced it must be true, because as you're going into the final singularity, necessarily, if you remain at the as human beings as um, atoms um, and well what we now are, eventually life can no longer exist on that substrate. it has to move into another substrate. and well, that's just human downloads. that's what we're talking about. But. So ultimately I define life to be a form of computer processing. Once I do that, then I can ask, will the laws of physics permit? unlimited amount of computer processing, i.e. infinite amount of computer processing between now and the final singularity and furthermore, can the information stored increase to infinity as you're going into the final state? My answer, which I develop in detail in the physics of immortality is yes.
0: There are so many issues that I want us to discuss here, so so let me try and keep moving forward step by step. So uh, the definition of of the Omega Point that I like of yours, uh, that I have here, is a state outside the universe of infinite power and knowledge. That
1: too. Of course, as beings, as finite creatures, to use a theological term, created being, um, we can um, only approach the singularity from inside of um, the natural world. The singularity is outside the natural world, it's beyond the natural world, and it is transcendent to the natural world. So approaching the singularity, the final singularity from inside the world, the amount of information, the amount of knowledge is approaching infinity as you're going into the final state. The um, the processing rate is increasing to infinity, so the total amount of information processing between now and the final state will be infinite. So I can talk about approaching the final state and identifying the final state with these infinities. That's what I'm doing. So literally the final state, the omega point, will be a state of infinite knowledge knowing everything that it can be known and the power available to life slash information processors, as we're going in the final state, will increase without limits, so we can say the omega point also is of infinite power. Mm-hmm. You can also, according to the laws of physics, regard the whole universe as being guided into this final state. That's called teleology in philosophy. In physics, is called unitarity. Which is a very precise mathematical concept, and it's been verified in thousands of experiments. So I'm convinced it's right. So I necessarily am convinced in the truth of teleology. So the universe is being guided into this ultimate final state, mm-hmm. which is the Omega Point, which is God the Father. Uh,
0: let me let me take it another small step forward. So why call it the Omega Point then? What why that means? taking that from uh, Teilhard that um, he's
1: identifying um, God with the omega point, which he thinks is the ultimate future. But remember it also has a mathematical slash physical implication, namely that the final um, singularity is a point in a specific mathematical construction called the Penrose C boundary construction. Now, that means if the if the final singularity is an Omega point, i.e. a point in the C boundary construction, event horizons cannot exist. Now that's a that's a far-reaching physics claim, because remember, in. Normal physics, what you consider in standard physics, you consider the event horizon to be defined to be the surface of a black hole. And we've certainly seen what I call astrophysical black holes out there. But a student of mine, and I published a paper um, in 05, showing that no experiment that can be conducted today can distinguish between a true black hole surrounded by an event horizon and an astrophysical black hole which looks like it's going to have an event horizon because event horizons if you look at their mathematical definition refer to the ultimate future we have not done measurements on the ultimate future so we cannot conclude that they are in fact surrounded by event horizons what you can prove mathematically is that If the universe is infinite in spatial size, and if it expands forever, then necessarily an astrophysical black hole must be a true black hole, i.e. surrounded by event horizons. But Stephen Hawking pointed out, and this is a current area of research under the name of firewall problem that there are severe mathematical problems, if you assume an astrophysical black hole, to be surrounded by an event horizon. So I conclude, aha! What these guys have discovered, really, is that the universe has no choice. If the laws of physics are to be consistent over all of time, not just in the past, but in the future too, that the universe has to end in an omega point.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, let me go back to the issue of uh, immortality and the presence of life here and and, uh, a couple of quotes that I have selected from you is that not only is it possible but it is inevitable is what you said once about immortality and in another place you say consciousness is essential to bring the entire cosmos into existence and since this is not done until the final state consciousness must continue to exist as long as the universe does.
1: Yes, that's what I call the, fi- the final anthropic principle. It says that we are not an accident. Now remember, I am a physics fundamentalist. <laughs> I mentioned that before. My hero, a fellow physics fundamentalist, was Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein famously said, I am con- and I'm convinced he's right, God does not play dice with the universe. That anything that happens in the universe is not an accident. We, you and I, we humans in general are not an accident. We're brought into existence for our purpose. And ultimately by looking at the laws of physics we can see what that purpose is. Because we are the first rational beings to appear in the universe we will move eventually off this planet, I think, as AIs are human downloads. I doubt if any serious colonization will ever be done um, by humans as meat beings. I think we humans will move to a higher level to undergo this singularity in the computer sense before serious colonization occurs. But we know that if we do not do this then the biosphere and the human race are doomed, ultimately, when the Earth's Sun leaves the main sequence and destroys the Earth. That's inevitable. Unless we move off the planet and, of course, modify the Earth and the Sun to stop that. But that means, ultimately, that our descendants will leave the planet, will start to colonize space, and once the colonization begins, there is nothing to stop it from engulfing the entire universe. And when it can gain its control, and it has to gain control of the entire universe if it is to survive. You can do, once you realize this is possible, you realize they have ultimately no choice if they want to survive. And remember, it's not just us surviving, it's the entire biosphere. Either we leave this planet and take the biosphere with us, or we, our descendants, and the entire biosphere will be destroyed by the sun. So it's everybody surviving or nobody surviving. The morality is clear.
0: But if we're not the first or the smartest, the only intelligences in the universe, then the sun can expand and destroy our planet and we can disappear or we can have a nuclear war and annihilate ourselves. And you can still hold your argument for, to be true for some other intelligence. And I'm that's not saying it's true, but I'm just saying it's logically correct. That's certainly
1: true. But um, what we can conclude uh, from evolutionary biology, first, that's the first step, is that intelligence seems to be quite rare in the universe. Francisco Ayala um, once argued, and sent me the numbers, that he says the evolution of intelligence on a given Earth-like planet is something like um, 10 to the minus 1 millionth power, uh, which is negligible, needless to say. But... um, Remember, I'm going to oppose Ayala on this because um, his version of um, evolution is that it's random. Remember, I'm a follower of Einstein. God does not play dice with the universe. There's nothing random actually happened. It's all determined. So we are brought into existence for a uh, purpose. So I would argue that intelligence indeed has to be rare. The evolutionists got that right but not so rare as to um, be us unique in the universe. We have to have other intelligences out there, but very far apart, say a billion light years would be the nearest one in my estimate, because the universe is now accelerating. The evidence, I think, is very strong on that. And unless the acceleration is canceled, we will be wiped out.
0: Life now, I, will die. I totally agree with you on the acceleration part. I just tried to, to figure out because it seems to me your argument would say it's impossible for us to destroy ourselves. And and I, I want to say that it is possible to do so even within your own argument.
1: I'm not convinced of that. Now, I, I appreciate the strength of what you're saying. I cannot quite show that uh, there is not, let's say, 50 light years away, that there is another intelligent life form out there and um, which, uh, well, we'll just be annihilated. Um, and they'll take over from us. This is possible. Um, But, um, the full implications, if they're not there, if there are indeed no other intelligent life out within a billion light years, given that, which I can't prove, obviously, because I don't have observational evidence of a billion light years away, given that they do not exist, then we, in that circumstance, Indeed, we cannot destroy ourselves until we've given rise to our human downloads and our artificial intelligence descendants.
0: Mm-hmm. So remember- let, let's assume you're correct and there is no other intelligences higher than us. So so then, how is it? Yeah, I see, I see how it is, but it's very strictly deterministic exactly in the way that Einstein had it.
1: Well, I, I mentioned I'm a follower of Einstein. Yeah, and for me, to me the personally... Why. The reason why is that um, everybody agrees, including me, that um, the fundamental equation of quantum mechanics is the Schrodinger equation, which has something called, it's an equation for what's called the wave function. Now, Einstein is supposed to have objected to quantum mechanics because of the wave function. He thought there had to be something else, but really, that's only because his interpretation of the wave function, which was everybody's interpretation, namely that the wave function is what's called a probability amplitude, but if you take a different view of the wave function than what's called the many worlds interpretation, then the wave function is not a probability amplitude, but a world density amplitude which gives us information about the density of universes in the multiverse which is the collection of all universes. This is the assertion that there are other universes out there which come from many worlds. But let's just consider physics for the moment from that point of view. In the early part of the 19th century, two great mathematicians slash physicists, Hamilton and Jacobi, cooked up what has since been called the Hamilton-Jacobi equation, which was really considered at the time and since to be the ultimate formulation of Newtonian mechanics. Um, it's a wave equation, and what it's a wave for is trajectories of Newtonian particles. Now, here's where it gets interesting. What you can prove is, very simply, typically the hamilton jacobi equation develops singularities. Bad singularities, because they occur in the laboratory, where they obviously do not occur. I'm claiming that the only singularities allowed for the consistency of physical law is the beginning of time and the end of time and the edge of the multiverse, which we can't see directly. Mm-hmm. Those are the only singularities allowed, because only then can determinism in the natural world be allowed to exist. The certainty And it's been well known for at least a century. That the Hamilton Jacobi equation develops singularities which mean a breakdown in determinism. Mm-hmm. Horror of horrors, a breakdown in determinism. <sighs> Einstein must be turning in his grave. No, let's think about this further. If you take the classical um, Hamilton Jacobi equation and add a term of what's called a poten- quantum potential, notice that word, then with that added term, which is perfectly allowed term in standard classical mechanics, the Hamilton Jacobi equation is mathematically equivalent to the Schrodinger equation. Which is to say, if you adopt a many worlds point of view of classical mechanics, then quantum mechanics is already part of classical mechanics, and furthermore quantum mechanics arises from classical mechanics by requiring that classical mechanics be deterministic. Aha! Here is a proof from quantum mechanics that determinism holds, that Einstein got it right, that God does not play dice with the universe. And you can prove that mathematically, where the physicists got the misinterpretation, that God did play dice by their wrong interpretation of the wave function. You can derive what they meant by a probability amplitude straight from classical deterministic physics. And remember, the Schrodinger equation arises from classical mechanics by constraining classical mechanics to always be deterministic. Quantum mechanics, modern physics, is more deterministic than classical mechanics. Einstein got it right. Indeed, God does not play dice for the universe.
0: <laughs> okay. proof
1: that he was right. He's uh, uh, cheering. He's right.
0: I think we are beyond my capacity to to argue with us at the intricacies of quantum mechanics, but we're also running out of time. Otherwise, I would have given it a go. But we've used one word many times that I want to uh, discuss a little bit, and that's the word singularity. So, can you please tell me how is the cosmological singularity? similar or different to the technological singularity which is a concept that my audience is very well familiarized with?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, It's the the, um, computer science um, um, singularity just means a radical change. It's singular event in human history. That's more of a philosophical term. Whereas, a singularity in physics is explicitly a mathematical concept. It goes back to the 19th century mathematics in which you were dealing with true infinities. It first arose, the singularity concept in mathematics, in complex analysis. Um, So it's a well-known mathematical concept that something is, well, it's more general than this, but also I will use a restricted version of singularity. It means where the equations no longer apply. And in the case of cosmology, the singularity means that the curvature is actually infinite at the singularity. Geometry can no longer be continued beyond the singularity. Reversing it, you see that the whole of the physical cosmos, i.e. where the laws of physics apply, arise from the cosmological singularity. So the cosmological singularity is determining everything one of which, it's de- one of the things it's determining is the singularity, the singular event, philosophical term, um, in human history, namely the evolution of this new species, human downloads and artificial intelligences. Now, what I'm arguing, of course, is the cosmological singularity is determining, requiring the existence of the computer science singularity, And I agree with um, um, various people like Hans Moravik and Ray Kurzweil that I think the singularity of computer science will occur in this century. I think we're very close. I think we already have the necessary hardware. What we're not understanding is the software of how intelligence actually works. What is actually happening in this skull of ours that makes us rational beings? We've not been able to fully duplicate it in software yet. But um, people like myself and Kurzweil and Merovic have done the calculations independently, and our estimates of how much computer power is required, we already have it in our supercomputers anyway. And you know the Moore's Law generalization that anything you'll have in a supercomputer, top-of-the-line supercomputer, 20 years later it will be available on a laptop or on your desk. So within 20 years everyone will have a, a laptop that in principle could run a full human level ai program in principle but that's then the question of how we will develop the software of course i want to argue that the development of the software will ultimately be determined by cosmological singularity which determines everything
0: let me see uh, let me see if i can bring one Perhaps, this, perhaps distinction or potential substantial disagreement there with respect to the two singularities that we just discussed and playing dice with the universe. My personal interpretation would be that the technological singularity allows for God to play dice with the universe. And that's actually one of the reasons why it's called a singularity. In other words, we do not have that determinism which says that, one, it is inevitable. I mean, Werner Vinge says it's very likely, but he says following any uh, you know, major... See,
1: ultimately rejects the laws of physics. This is a question that uh, we've discussed that physicists typically, leading universities, the physicists in their department reject the laws of physics. They do not accept determinism. Einstein got it right, they got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And as I've said, that's the mathematics is very clear. But, but do you, accept- you can avoid the conclusions only by having new physical laws. Now I can't rule out the possibility that something like string theory is true. I think, however, there is no empirical basis for string theory. What's the why bother with it? Everything is um, explained by the known physical laws, quantum gravity, and uh, developed by Wheeler and DeWitt, my teachers. And um, the standard model, and in, in developed um, by a numerous people in the 20th, late twentieth century. So we've got a we've got a theory of everything. This theory of everything is fully deterministic. So there so, are no accidents in a deterministic universe.
0: <laughs> yes. Okay. So we got that. That's very much your credo, and I I totally respect that. But let me ask yep, you this: I'm just
1: following the laws of physics. Remember, you cannot set aside the laws of physics without empirical justification. And the more we know about the laws of physics, um, for example, the um, I just told you about the derivation of the Schrodinger equation, for the Hamilton-Jacobi equation. Mm-hmm. That's actually been known before I was born. The full implications, however, have been brought about by me because only I was aware of this proof and believed in the many worlds. You have to accept many worlds mechanics as at least a possibility, Mm -hmm. then you see how it's already included in classical mechanics. So, you see that quantum mechanics really follows mathematically from the requirement that reality be deterministic. I consider that evidence, mathematical evidence and experimental evidence that quantum mechanics is true for determinism.
0: So, so let's say everything Let's say determinism is absolutely correct, and you're correct that uh, we have a complete theory of everything already. Doesn't that say that there's nothing more to learn?
1: Well, there is plenty of things to learn, just not on the fundamental grounds. That uh, it's uh, fundamental
0: details. The fundamentals, we've got them already.
1: Well, it's like the um, there are plenty of things on the earth that we do not know. There are species uh, which um, we do not know. We're discovering new species of animals all the time, new species of plants. But we have overall a complete picture of the general geometry of the, of the geography of the Earth. That was done, um, in the, um, by the, completed by the 16th century. Well, not quite. Maybe the end of the 19th century. We still have not um, gone over Antarctica until the end of the 19th century, maybe even the early 20th century. The point is that that's been done. We know what the overall geometry of the uh, Earth is like. Similarly, we have an overall picture of fundamental physics. We've got it. And um, what we still have, however, other things to learn. For instance, we do not know how to make an AI program at the human level. That's something which is ultimately determined, which is in, will be completely consistent with the laws of physics when it is done, and uh, we still have to learn how to do it. So there's plenty to learn uh, of important things to learn, because I think that you, I, and all members of your audience are in complete agreement. When AIs, human downloads appear, it will be a really singular event in human history. Most important event in human history. I fully agree. You fully agree. We um, have no words. lot to learn how to do that?
0: We absolutely agree on that. I, I'm just uh, trying to point out that that you know we have a little bit of a disagreement on the certainty and especially on the inevitability of that.
1: Well, because you don't understand the laws of physics, and I do. It's my physics—they're not. <laughs> uh, you're not a professional physicist. I am frustrated with my colleagues. Because um, they're allowing their philosophical prejudices to overrule their knowledge of physics. I didn't discover Schrodinger's equation. I didn't discover Einstein's equation. I didn't discover the Hamilton-Jacobi equation. We both, we all know who did. Their names are associated with these equations. Uh-huh. The only thing I'm doing is drawing the mathematical consequences of these laws, which are already been tested innumerable times in the laboratory. The only reason to set aside a fundamental law of physics, um, which has been tested many times, is if you're compelled by experiment to do so. And as we know, this last summer they discovered the Higgs boson. The latest results from the uh, CERN accelerator is that it's the standard model Higgs boson. There is no experimental evidence to date that there's anything beyond the standard model. I'm convinced that it but, once again, I could be wrong.
0: Let me... If let,
1: it is the fundamental laws, though, let me emphasize this, then, the mathem- then all you need is mathematics. Given the laws of physics, from those laws of physics, everything else is certain.
0: Okay, great. So, so, now, let's assume that everything you say is true and accurate given the laws of physics, which I don't really understand. So, tell me about mind uploading and consciousness. How do they fit within that and and especially what do you think of the so-called hammer of Penrose or or model of consciousness, quantum consciousness?
1: Penrose is very clear. He's a good mathematician. He knows what the consequences of the mathematics are. He rejects, therefore, the laws of physics. He rejects quantum mechanics in the fully consistent model of quantum mechanics, which is unitary time evolution. He rejects that explicitly. I accept it because there is no experimental evidence showing that it's wrong. So, Penrose is therefore wrong, because he is trying to put his philosophy ahead of the physics. Only if you have an experiment showing that the physics is wrong in physics can you set it aside. So I think, remember, Penrose, of course, ultimately is to attack the idea of the singularity, because he thinks there's something in going on in the human brain that's not there that we can duplicate in a a computer. I think he's completely wrong and that's why I think he's wrong, because he knows what he's doing. He knows he's setting aside this fundamental law of unitarity, which is a fundamental postulate of quantum mechanics, has all sorts of implications, all of which have been verified. So I think he's wrong on that. In my view, now this is Um, I think that um, consciousness is a operating system. And what is interesting, anyone who knows about computers knows that you're not committed to one particular operating system. And a man by the name of Julian James argued about thirty years ago that until about two, three thousand years ago human beings were not conscious. They were fully homo sapiens but they had not adopted a consciousness type of operating system. He says, he, he calls his book The uh, Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, which means, he argues, that in 3,000 years ago, all human beings used a non-conscious um, operating system in the sense that you, if you read the ancient literature, He was talking about Homer, but you can also see it in, for example, Chinese literature um, written at the same time. They all thought themselves as being controlled by the gods. They didn't consider themselves as independent actors. And it's strange to us reading this, but it makes all kinds of sense if you assume they're using a different operating system, which does not involve considering themselves as conscious beings. They have the human brains. They're just using a different operating system. So I don't consider consciousness a really fundamental question of physics at all. I think it arises um, from computer software. And, of course, that's the whole argument which we believers in the computer singularity have been making all along. We don't have the software yet, but when we understand the software of consciousness, then we will be able to create a human download and an artificial intelligence.
0: Dr. Tipler, time is advancing here. We only have another four or five minutes, I think. So let me ask you this. What is the biggest misconception about your argument and your claims that we've been discussing for the last 55 minutes or so? The biggest misconception that you'd like to sort of take care of?
1: Well, um, I think people are thinking that um, I'm approaching this from another point of view, namely, I assume the primacy of religion. No, I assume the primacy of physics. And I hope that's come clear, through very clearly in our discussion, that I am an empiricist fundamentally, and I am a physics fundamentalist, that I believe in experiment to tell us what nature has to be, and I think that, looking myself at the evidence, and I invite your listeners to do this also, look at the evidence supporting quantum mechanics, many worlds quantum mechanics in particular, which is the only correct fully mathematical consistent interpretation of quantum mechanics, and how all of these laws of physics are interrelated. Then you see, obvious we have a, a theory of everything right now. Given a the theory of everything, you can then, by using mathematics, calculate what has to happen in broad outline and what did happen. I mean, it's that procedure that has given the technology we have. Starting with Copernicus, we believed in the laws of physics, we discovered the laws of physics, we've also discovered if you look at the history of physics. It is very difficult to set aside the laws of, law of physics. That if you look at the Einstein theory of relativity, from the mathematical point of view, really advanced mathematics, which I don't have time to go into here, um, you say that really, relativity is Newtonian gravity theory generalized to the case where you no longer have absolute time. It's the obvious version of Newtonian gravity theory, which you don't have absolute time. And I've just mentioned, quantum mechanics follows from classical mechanics. You don't leave classical mechanics when you're doing quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics follows from classical mechanics with the requirement classical mechanics must always be deterministic Einstein got it right God does not play dice for the universe
0: let's say let's say that's absolutely the case but let me ask you this is there any falsifiable uh, element of your theory in light of which you would be willing to reconsider your uh, beliefs your claims and to perhaps change the the final conclusions thereof well for
1: instance if string theory were shown to be experimentally and I cannot imagine an experiment like it's wrong um, if it were shown to be true that general relativity was quantum general relativity was not the ultimate theory then I think my theories are wrong mm-hmm. I would reject it I'd go back to being an atheist because yeah. the evidence would show me to be wrong in my theism. My theism is based on God being the uncaused first cause, which is the cosmological singularity. And if the cosmological singularity does not exist, I would conclude that atheism was right all along, and I should switch to become an atheist
0: and reject Christianity and theism. And that all depends on string theory.
1: No, there are, uh, um, string theory, I as an example of a way in which you could get rid of the singularity. Another possibility out there is called loop chronum gravity, which again has no motivations except in theology. They're trying to get rid of this nasty singularity which they don't like. Why don't they like it? It's in the equations. They have no reason to get rid of it except philosophical slash theological reasons. They don't want God to be in the equation. <laughs> Sorry, guys. He is in the equations, and you have to get used to it.
0: I love that. Okay, so the last two questions that I always ask from guests on my show are this. Uh, first of all, where can people find more about you and your work? What's well, the best place? I can my
1: books from Doubleday. Physics of Immortality, um, published in ninety four, Doubleday, and also um, the Physics of Christianity, also published by Doubleday. Earlier book, which has some brief mention of this uh, make a point theory, the last chapter, appropriately, is The Anthropic Cosmological Principle, which I lo- uh, wrote with the Cambridge uh, astrophysicist John Barrow, um, published by Oxford University Press. Mm-hmm. Those are the non technical um, side. Also, if you're interested in the technical papers, well, I give a number of them in um, the Physics of Christianity, the latest ones, which are, were published in the uh, Standard Journals. But now we're, we scientists are sort of moving away from the journals because it takes forever to get these damn things published. Yeah. And uh, we're interested in communicating our results as soon as possible. So what we do is put our papers on the, what's called the archive, A-R-X-I-V. And that's accessible on the computer to anybody. So if you want to find my latest thoughts, absolute latest thoughts, go to the archive. Fantastic. But once again, that's technical.
0: Fantastic. Dr. Tipler, we've been talking roughly for about an hour. So let me ask you this final question. If people were to take a single message, perhaps the most important thing from our conversation today, what would you like that to be? The human race and our civilization will live forever,
1: never die. If the laws of physics be for us, who can be against us?
0: (laughs) Dr. Tipler, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: My pleasure.